Well, good morning, Horizons. Good to see you. Appreciate you braving the cold and the snow to be here today. You, you know, there's one thing we tend to appreciate, maybe more than anything else when we're in a foreign country, and that is our American citizenship. In fact, several years ago, my oldest son Josh and I were in China. Uh, we were visiting the autonomous region, which is the uh, the region of Tibet. Uh, one of our goals was to connect with an unreached people group, the Kong. And so we were there on the plateau at about 12,000 feet, participating in a Tibetan festival where the Kong would come from all over the Himalayas uh, to be a part of the festival. And uh, I was sitting on the ground uh, next to a large parade area, and there was uh, a tribal dance going on in front of me, and I wanted to video it. So I pulled my video camera out of my backpack and began videoing the tribal dance, when suddenly I was blocked by a pair of green fatigues. When I looked up, there was a Chinese soldier staring at me with his gun pointed right toward my head. And beside him was a very pleasant-looking young Chinese woman who said in perfect English, if you do not put your camera away, we will have to punish you. Now, that has a way of getting your attention in the communist country. And what I discovered was I was supposed to pay a fee of anywhere between $200 and $500 for the privilege of taking pictures there at the festival on the plateau. You see, we take the privilege of our citizenship and the freedoms that it brings for granted when we're in the States. But you're never more appreciative of your citizenship than when you're in a foreign country. And it's interesting It's this idea of citizenship that is the subject of Paul's very first command. He gives this church at Philippi in this book that bears their name. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. We'll begin there. And we will begin to understand how our citizenship can actually impact our behavior. You can follow along as I read starting verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, throughout chapter 1, Paul has focused primarily on his chains, uh, his critics, the crisis he's facing in his life, it's focused on himself. But here in verse 27, he takes an abrupt turn and begins addressing the Philippians directly. And in doing so, he uses, of all things, political terminology. See if you can see the political terminology as we read that first half of the verse again. Only conduct yourselves... Worthy of the gospel of Christ. Did you see it? That word conduct is actually a political term. In its verbal form, it means to be a citizen. You need to know that this letter is written to a city, Philippi, who holds in high regard Roman citizenship. 
Remember, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was filled with Roman citizens, many of whom were Roman soldiers and retired soldiers. And they understood that their Roman citizenship came with certain privileges. I mean, a Roman citizen was respected throughout the then known world because his Roman citizenship was backed up by the strength and might of one of the greatest empires of the world. I mean, no matter where you were in the world, it was said that you as a Roman citizen were always connected to the glory and greatness that was Rome. Now, Paul understands the power behind a Roman citizen uh, and his citizenship. In fact, Paul himself has Roman citizenship. But Paul is suggesting here to the Philippians that there be a paradigm shift for the Christ follower. As powerful and prestigious as Roman citizenship is, Paul wants the Philippians to know they have a different citizenship. They are citizens of a different country. In fact, it's a country they've never been to. And he states it categorically in chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, for our citizenship is in heaven. But but what I want you to notice is that he says, let your conduct, in other words, your behavior that's governed by this citizenship, let that be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, when you hear the word gospel, what do you think of? It's kind of a religious word, isn't it? Did you know the word gospel simply means good news? Now, winning the lottery, that's good news. Uh, Finding out you're going to have a child, that's good news. Getting a promotion, that's good news. But Paul is saying here that all that pales in comparison to the good news that comes from God. In fact, this good news is one of the most difficult concepts for people to understand and embrace about Christianity. And that is that forgiveness has been freely offered. It's been offered to you, no strings attached. You don't have to work for it. You don't try to earn it. You don't try to be good enough by doing enough good things to earn your uh, your forgiveness. It's extended to you by grace and mercy. Now, now mercy uh, is a word that means you don't get what you deserve. I mean, what does the Bible tell us we deserve because of our selfishness, our sin? It says we deserve death. You don't get that. That's mercy. So mercy is getting what you don't deserve, but grace is the flip side of mercy. It's getting what you do deserve. I mean, I'm sorry. I just sent them backwards. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. You deserve death. You don't get that. That's mercy. Grace is the flip side of that. It's getting what you don't deserve. We don't deserve eternal life or forgiveness. And yet it's been given to us. That's grace. That's how grace and mercy work together. Now, Paul wants us to know that when we realize that this citizenship in heaven is secure, in other words, there's nothing you can do to earn it. It's given to you. So... There's nothing you do that can cause you to lose it. When we realize that that citizenship is secure, the way we live on this earth starts.
starts to become more and more obvious. That's why he says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. This good news. In fact, uh, sometime back I was in the doctor's office and I was waiting for the doctor to, uh, to come in and I noticed this set of scales out in the hall and I thought I'd take advantage of just the freedom to, in the moment to weigh myself. So I went out there and it was one of those scales that has, you know, the bar that comes across and the weight you kind of scoot down and you scoot it down until the bar uh, finds it or the arrow on the bar uh, finds itself between the two marks on the end. And so I was scooting it down, scooting it down, scooting it down. The further I scooted, the more concerned I became. I went all the way to the end, and the bar never dropped. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, I weigh over 200 pounds. What have I been eating? Golly, what has happened? And then I noticed down at the other end it was set for a child. So I moved the larger weight up, and then I scooted uh, the little weight down until the bar balanced between the two lines. Now, that's the idea Paul has in mind by using this word, worthy. That word means to bring up the bar to balance the scale. I mean, can you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying that our conduct as citizens of heaven should be in balance with the grace and mercy of the gospel. In other words, our beliefs should not outweigh our behavior. So, Paul encourages the Philippians and us as well that we are to behave like citizens of a different country, a heavenly one. So, how do we do that? Well, he tells us by borrowing a word from the military. In fact, let's look back at that very first verse. It says, let us, uh, or, or let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit. You see that phrase, stand fast? Did you know that would conjure up an image in the Roman mind that you and I would never think of? A Roman citizen would immediately think of a Roman phalanx. A group of soldiers standing in close formation, shields interlocked with their spears protruding. Did you know a single Roman phalanx of just 16 soldiers could protect 32 square yards of ground from an entire invading army? I mean, that's amazing. So Paul's implying here by using this word, whether we're aware of it or not, we're in a battle. It's a battle for the simplicity of the gospel, the gospel of grace and mercy. So he encourages us to stand against anything that might add to that or take away from that message. In other words, we're to stand consistently like soldiers upholding the grace and mercy that is found in the gospel. By the way, do you know what the most effective weapon you can use to promote and defend the gospel is? It's the consistent life of a Christ follower. I mean, the reality is that if you live with Christ at the helm of your life, I'm not legalistically, I'm not talking about that, I'm talking about extending the grace and mercy that's been extended to you, that people start noticing. Uh, They look at your life and they go, he's different. I wonder what makes him different. I like what I see. I want to live like that. I want what he has. 
Remember, I told you Josh and I visited Tibet trying to connect with this unreached people group, the Kham, that lived on the Tibetan plateau and in the mountains there. And we were there for two weeks, and then we came back to the States. Well, a year later, I got an encouraging email from one in our party who stayed for a year there in Tibet trying to connect with the Kham. And in that email, it told about uh, the fact that he was eating at an outdoor cafe up on the plateau when he noticed a young, calm Tibetan woman attempting to cross a busy street with an armload of books, maybe a dozen books. And as she was dodging traffic, walking across the street, the books began to shift until one uh, fell out. And as she tried to catch it, these over here fell out. And suddenly there were 12 or 14 books in the street with cars just racing by. Well, my friend jumped the rail of the cafe he was eating at, ran out in the street, stopped the traffic, helped this woman pick up her books, and escorted her across the street. Now, that simple act of grace was so foreign to the way a Tibetan Buddhist would think that when he jumped the rail and ran out in the street, people on the side of the street just stopped and stared. You see, in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, compassion is a feeling that's never translated into action. Because if I were to help you in your difficulty... uh, you're having to go through that because you have bad karma. And if I intervene, then I simply take away your opportunity to earn good karma by picking up the books. I mean, this is part of the cycle of life you're having to go through, and you're just going to have to go through it again. So why would I help you? It's not doing you any favors when it comes to the way things work in their mindset in eternity. But that mere act of grace caused a paradigm shift to take place in this young woman's mind that eventually led her to become the first Christ follower among the calm in Tibet. A simple act of grace. So really, in a roundabout way, Paul is asking us a question, isn't he? I mean, his question is, if someone observed your life, what would they see? Now, none of us is perfect, but what would they see about the grace of God? What would they discover about the mercy of God? See, the most effective weapon against those who want to distort the gospel message is the consistent life of a Christ follower, one that reflects his heavenly citizenship, a citizenship of grace and mercy. Now, I want you to notice Paul changes metaphors right here in midstream. He moves from a military metaphor to a word that is used in athletic competitions. Look back at the verse. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand firm, that's the military metaphor, in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for faith, the faith of the gospel. I don't know about you, but I've always enjoyed listening to John Madden, especially when he was the color commentator on Monday Night Football. I mean, Madden had an unbelievable handle on the game, 
but he had an entertaining way of explaining it. And, and I love it when he would um, explain a play by looking at slow motion. And he would talk about how the guard headed to pull to knock out the outside linebacker. At the same time, the quarterback is faking a handoff to the tailback, which freezes the defensive back so that the six foot eleven tied in has time to lumber out into the flat so the pass could be completed. Now, if any of those assignments was missed, it was a busted play. Or, or even worse, it was an interception, or even worse, it was an interception and a touchdown. Now, the most gifted player in the NFL knows that he's never going to accomplish anything of significance apart from his team. It takes everybody working together, doing their best. Now, by using that phrase, striving together, Paul is saying that's exactly what the church should be like. This idea of my walk with Christ is personal, it's individual, it's just me and God, would have never entered Paul's mind any more than it would enter Peyton Manning's mind that he's going to win the Super Bowl by himself. Now, Richard Sherman may have that entered his mind, but he would be wrong. I mean, I think Paul would be appalled at our modern-day individualistic approach to Christianity. He sees the church as a team. Every individual playing specific roles, carrying out specific assignments. One not more important than the other, all working together. A concerted effort, performing together with one another. Now, you've got to keep in mind that this church at Philippi was no stranger to um, conflicts going on in the church. In fact, in chapter 4, when we get there, you'll see that there are two ladies who are having a disagreement with one another. And apparently those in the fellowship are beginning to take sides. Do you know what the, that the enemy's most effective strategy against the church is divide and conquer? To pit one group against another to stop us from working together as a team. In fact, I find it fascinating that Paul uh, utilizes a grammatical device in here to emphasize the power of team unity. He uses the little prefix soon. S-U-N is the way it's spelled. That word means with or together. When attached to the beginning of a Greek word, it intensifies this emphasis on unity. It would be like our English uh, prefix co, as in cooperate or coordinate. Guess how many times Paul uses that little prefix in this short book? Sixteen times in four short chapters. I mean, Paul's first century readers would not have missed his message. The church is a team. In other words, we strive together cooperatively. In fact, sometime back in a Midwestern state fair, there was a competition of draft horses. The champion of that particular fair pulled a sled weighing 4,500 pounds. The second place finisher pulled one weighing 4,000 pounds. And then someone said, let's harness the two big fellows together to see what they could pull as a team. They pulled together a sled weighing 
12,000 pounds. And 2,000 years ago, Paul understood the power that's available in team. That's what team does. So where standing fast talks about protecting the gospel, striving together here speaks of advancing the gospel. That's our conduct as heavenly citizens. We're to stand consistently as a soldier. We are to strive cooperatively like an athlete. But there's a third way we're to conduct our lives. And it's going to give you pause. In fact, you may need to buckle your seatbelts for this. Look at verse 28. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, means a proof of their destruction, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul says when you face opposition, and you will face it, that it's been appointed for you to suffer. Suffer? Really? That's not too encouraging, is it? No one wants to hear that. I'm supposed to suffer. I mean, Paul's telling us that our heavenly citizenship compels us to stand consistently, to strive cooperatively, but it also compels us to suffer confidently. Now, Paul, of all people, knew about the opposition that took place in Philippi. I mean, if you remember when he visited Philippi in the book of Acts, what took place? I mean, he removed a demonic spirit from a fortune-telling slave girl and was arrested immediately. He had to stand before the magistrate. And then he was beaten severely. He was thrown in stocks and then thrown into jail. Now, your suffering may not be as dramatic as Paul's suffering, but... Paul does say that we will suffer for what we believe. In fact, I think I've mentioned it before to you guys, but um, when I was in college, I was in a fraternity. And in order to become an active in our fraternity, a pledge had to do a number of things. One of the things he had to do is get his paddle signed by all 110 actives. And in order to get your paddle signed, you would trade a, an act of servitude for a signature. And so it, I mean, it follows that, well, actives tend to look at pledges as their own personal slaves. You could get them to do just about anything. And they did in order to earn this active signature. Well, I felt like God wanted me to use the situation to communicate the grace of the gospel. So I gave away my signature free. No, no strings attached as a practical demonstration of grace. So I, I didn't make pledges, wash my car on Saturday or make my bed for a week or run naked around the fraternity house during homecoming, stupid things like that. I gave my signature, uh, signature away freely. And when I did... I told them about another free gift they could take advantage of. Now, you would think that the members of the fraternity would appreciate that, especially if you were a pledge. You're having to do nothing for my signature. But when it became known that I was a Christ follower, a number of actors and even pledges took it upon themselves to prove that I wasn't. 
So I became the, the object of many practical jokes. In fact, I remember my junior year studying for, for final exams, big exam coming up the next day. I mean, I was focused on studying, and my uh, room door cracked open there in the fraternity, and in came a bottle of shaving cream like a grenade. Somebody had poked a hole on one end, and so when it came in, it just spun around and it spread shaving cream from ceiling to floor all over all my papers I was studying. It took me hours to get it cleaned up, and when I walked out in the hall afterwards, there were actors and pledges just standing there waiting to see what I might do or say. So Paul says, don't be surprised to suffer because of your faith, but it's really more than that. Paul's saying that when it happens, you could actually be encouraged. Encouraged? What? How are we encouraged? Well, Paul goes on to tell us that opposition actually proves that you have a relationship with God. Paul doesn't want us to be surprised that when people will oppose us because of our faith. I mean, the more you become like Christ, the more you live and conduct your life in line with your heavenly citizenship, the more others will take it upon themselves to prove, no, you're not like Christ. No, you're just like the rest of us. So Paul tells us when that happens, it really ought to encourage you. Notice he says it is the proof to you of salvation. It's an indication that God's at work in your life. He's bringing about something different. You're unique. God's working. So it's opposition proves that you have a relationship with God. But Paul says, secondly, opposition gives us the privilege of suffering. You may have probably never thought of suffering as a privilege. But, I mean, look at what Paul says. He says suffering, this word suffering that we face has been granted to us. It means it's actually a gift. In fact, it's the very theme he'll come back to in chapter 3, verse 10, when he says we have the privilege of fellowship with Christ's sufferings. In other words, there's something about suffering for what you believe that aligns you more closely to the heart of Christ, that allows you to understand more thoroughly how Jesus suffered when he walked this earth. Now, my suffering may not be on par with someone else's suffering, but suffering is suffering, I mean, pure and simple. And Paul knows that suffering can grow us. It can also develop spiritual muscles we didn't know we had. And it can give us some fresh courage for things that may take place in the future that God knows about, but we don't know what the future is like. And then finally, Paul says, You need to remember that opposition is experienced by other believers all over the world. Notice, he says that they were having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Paul wants the church of Philippi to know they're not alone in suffering. In fact, the first recorded um, event of persecution took place in Acts 4 when Peter and John were thrown into prison because they were standing for the gospel. But it didn't stop there. Two chapters later, Acts 6, Stephen is stoned to death for his stand on the gospel. In fact, every disciple except John was persecuted and martyred because of their belief in the gospel. 
I mean, tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down by Nero. Andrew uh, died on a cross in Achaia. James, the brother of John, was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, was filleted alive. Thomas was run through with a lance in the East Indies. Philip was hanged. Thaddeus was shot to death with arrows. I mean, that's just to name a few. But it continues even to today. The persecuted church has continued to escalate until today there are over 200 million Christ followers being persecuted because of their faith. And statistics show that uh, 160,000 to 200,000 die because of their faith every year. That means just during this message, there have been anywhere between 14 and 20 Christ followers just like you who have given up their life because of their faith, what they believe. So Paul's reminder to us is twofold. He says it's been granted us the privilege to believe. Now that's the delightful part but also to suffer. That's the, the difficult part. And as a result, it really leaves us with a dilemma, doesn't it? As we faithfully attempt to walk with God, living out our heavenly citizenship, I mean, we may find ourselves suffering rather than being rewarded for our walk with Christ. So how do we respond to that? Malcolm Mulgridge was a foreign correspondent. He was the editor of Punch Magazine in Britain. And, and as a reporter, um, he had to see a lot of difficult things in life. Later in life, he came to know Christ. And uh, he talks about how he had to live with being a secular reporter and at the same time being a Christ follower. And he frequently wrote of feeling like a stranger, a foreigner in a foreign land. Before his death, he was asked, what, what did you mean by that, a stranger, a foreigner in a foreign land? I want you to hear what he said. He said, in the war when I was in North Africa, I heard some lieutenant colonels first use the phrase displaced person. That phrase was very poignant to me. But it also was a good definition of a person who comes to see that life is not about earthly things or success. But it's about the eternal rather than the temporal. And then he concluded this way. You see, I don't belong here. I'm simply staying here for a while. You see, this world is filled with a bazillion success-oriented people. And there's nothing wrong with success. But Paul is calling us to see ourselves as a displaced person. Therefore, our survival depends upon staying properly oriented to the grace and mercy of the gospel and extending that to others. In fact, I want to tell you about an opportunity that you can participate in that extends grace and mercy to others. Watch the video screen. Feed My Starving Children is a Christian organization. We produce a nutritious food that we send to starving children in 67 countries around the world. Our food was scientifically designed to restore a child from malnutrition to health. We got 
Many of you know we've participated in feeding my starving children for the past several years. Usually we participate in the spring, but this year we had the opportunity to participate this winter. So February 13th, 14th, and 15th, we're going to be putting together meals, and this time it's going to be at Indian Hill High School. We're going to be partnering with them. They're letting us use their facility and even many of their students will be participating. And we would love to extend the invitation for you to participate in that. Our goal is to find a 1,000 volunteers that can pack 300,000 meals. And if you've got kids, almost any age except maybe toddlers and infants, I would encourage you to get them working with you packing meals. I mean, it demonstrates your heart to serve and your heart to extend grace and mercy to others. In fact, kids have never been good at obeying parents, but they have never stopped imitating them. So it's important that you demonstrate a heart of grace and mercy in serving, and they'll catch that. So hopefully you'll participate with us. Go to our website, horizoncc.com. Look for Feed My Starving Children. Click on the button. You can sign up for a specific time there and hope you'll uh, take advantage of that. Thanks for coming, and we'll see you back next week.